Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Progress After Dark. Welcome to the night shift that is Tell Me Everything. Bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. Making sense out of everything we've just gone through in the last 24 hours. And making a quick detour away from politics before it gets too dark and depressing. We want to know how you guys are feeling. And for the next three hours, we invite you to join the dialogue at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. If you've enjoyed our recent interviews with, my God, all the celebrity, Christoph Waltz just did the show, and, and we just had Bo-Katan from The Mandalorian just do the show, and Ryan Johnson, just go to SiriusXM On Demand or the SiriusXM app or the John Fuglesang podcast to catch up on all of our great celebrity interviews. Just taped a brand new one with Graham Nash yesterday. I can't wait to bring that one to you. And uh, we got a great show tonight. Dr. Tracy Lawrence will be here to help us make sense of all the political fuckery. Virginia State Senator Louise Lucas, who represents Virginia's 8th District. She's president pro tempore of the Virginia Senate. She's had a pretty interesting life. Was raised during segregation. She's 79 now, and she's arguably the most powerful Democrat in the Virginia legislature. She has been resisting Glenn Youngkin's agenda from the very beginning. She has been arrested and had the charges dismissed against her. She is a fierce, fierce advocate of working people, and we taped a dynamite interview with her. We can't wait to bring that to you tonight. Also, Tom Merritt is here of the Daily News Tech Show to explain, well, I guess, to explain what is (laughs) Section 230. You've probably heard quite a bit about it. Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act. Now, there's two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court right now regarding protections that are provided by Section 230. It's considered to be the most important law in tech. And, you know, it's it's a couple of cases under the Communications Decency Act that shield tech companies from liability while also permitting them to remove objectionable content, even if it is protected free speech. It allows them to monitor their own sites or 
to not monitor their own sites. How responsible are the tech giants for things that are posted on their platforms? Two different cases are going before the Supreme Court that could change the way all the world does business in the U.S. You don't want to miss this conversation. And of course, all night long, we're taking your calls at 866-997-4748. It has been a crazy day. I'm so glad you're with us. Chris Hauselt is our associate producer. He's running the show from South Carolina. The mighty Thea Harper runs this show from Brooklyn, and I come to you from the island of Manhattan. Now, look, there's a lot to get to. It's been a very, very crazy day. Um, Let's do a show. Mass killers. They're frequently too insane to stand trial, but they're rarely too insane to buy AR-15s. There have been more mass shootings this year than there have been days, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Uh, 130 mass shootings. And we are 87 days in to 2023. Nashville police said today the suspected shooter at the Christian school in Nashville yesterday legally purchased seven guns from five local gun stores. Three of those guns were used in Monday's shooting. Now, apparently, uh, the suspect, the late suspect, hid the guns from their parents before carrying out the attack by just firing indiscriminately at different victims. Three children, all age nine three adults in their 60s. Their parents were only aware of one of the firearms and didn't believe that Audrey Hale, 28 years old, should even be able to own weapons. And we also found out that Audrey Hale was under doctor's care for an undisclosed emotional disorder. Now, we also know Audrey Hale was a former student at the school. Hale did not target specific victims, but did target this school, this church building, the police said today at their news conference. Now, the police have said if they had been told that Audrey Hale was suicidal or homicidal, they said then we would have tried to get those weapons. But as it stands, we had absolutely no idea who this person was or if Hale even existed. But it's not that simple because, you see, Tennessee does not currently have a red flag law, which is the law that allows the police to step in and take firearms away from people who threaten to harm or kill others. The cops would have been powerless to disarm a dangerous person. Today, Joe Biden repeated his call on Congress to ban assault-style weapons. Here he is once again begging Congress to pass meaningful gun legislation. Last year, we came together to pass the most significant gun safety legislation in 30 years. It was bipartisan. We got it done. And don't tell me we can't do more together. So I again call on Congress to pass the assault weapons ban. It should not be a partisan issue. It's a common sense issue. They have to act now. People say, why do I keep saying this if it's not happening? Because I want you to know who isn't doing it, who isn't helping to put pressure on it. You know, I know you see on television, it's not just merely the the weapon in terms of it's that it's semi-automatic in effect, but the velocity with which it comes out of that muzzle. What it does when it hits the body, most bullets would go just straight through and out, leaving little, but it blows up once it's inside your body. What in God's name, what in God's name does anyone need that for in America? Yeah, he's right. There's an excellent piece in the Washington Post I highly recommend. I'm going to tweet it out. It's called The Blast Effect, and it's an animated piece that uses 3D animations to show how destructive the bullet from an AR-15 is when it enters a human body 
and blows that body apart. They, they don't use actual footage, but they use 3D animation to show every wound and what every wound did to two different children who have been murdered by an AR-15. Peter Wang, who's 15, who was murdered by an AR-15 in Parkland, Florida, and Noah Posner, who was six years old and murdered in Newtown, Connecticut. It's an essential piece in the Washington Post. I recommend it very highly, The Blast Effect. But again, keep in mind, these weapons that were used in Nashville, completely legal. And the use of legally purchased weapons in mass shootings is incredibly common. That 20-year-old who murdered those people in Uvalde, that 20-something-year-old who murdered those people in Buffalo, they both legally purchased their guns they used in the shootings. From 1966 to 2019, 77% of mass shooters purchased at least one of the weapons used in the shootings legally, according to the National Institute of Justice. Illegal purchases were made by just 13% of mass shooters. So, yeah, they're legally acquired. Because we don't have separation of lunatic and gun. Here's Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida on the House floor expressing his disgust at congressional inaction after decades of school shootings. Mr. Speaker, I rise today because I am furious. Angry that three kids died today in Nashville, Tennessee. Angry that hundreds of parents had to cry their eyes out today, not knowing if their child would come home from school. And angry that we have to live day after day when we turn on the news to see rampant gun violence claiming life after life. And all of this is because politicians in this chamber that have been bought and paid for by the NRA, that put profits over people, over human lives, cowards who wasted our time last week, passing a parental bill of rights, not giving a damn about the rights of children to be able to go to their classroom without the fear of being gunned down due to senseless gun violence. It is likely that at this moment, the next mass shooter is planning their shooting. What will this chamber do about it? I filed my last bill last week to simply create a federal office of gun violence prevention. Three kids are dead today, and every day that we wait, a hundred more people die. I pray to God that there are some Republicans in this chamber that can help support my legislation to save lives. I yield back my time. Now, right-wingers seized on this mass shooting to argue for two things, either do absolutely nothing or to just beat up on transgender people in general, which is to say, still doing nothing. Here is House Majority Leader Steve Scalise repeating the GOP mantra of gun control responsibility avoidance. Thoughts and prayers and thoughts and prayers and mental health and arm the teachers. Take it, Steve. Yeah, the first thing in any kind of tragedy I do is, as I pray, I pray for the victims, pray for their families. Uh, I, I, I really get angry when I see people trying to politicize it for their own personal agenda, especially when we don't even know the facts. There are facts coming out. It looks like the shooter originally went to another school that uh, had real stronger, much stronger security and ultimately went to this school. Let's get the facts uh, and let's let's work to see if there's something that we can do to help secure schools. We've talked about things that we can do, and it just seems like on the other side, all they want to do is take guns away from law-abiding citizens. Before they even know the facts, the first thing they talk about is taking guns away from law-abiding citizens. Uh, And that's not the answer, by the way. So why don't we, number one, keep those families in our prayers, 
and see yeah, if there okay. were things that okay. were missed I'm sorry. along just, the way. Just, We've talked about the need to improve lies. mental health. This is a guy. Uh, this is a guy who was actually shot. This is Steve Scalise is one of the most morally decrepit humans in Congress. He's someone who called himself David Duke without the baggage. He's been a bigot most of his life. He's a white supremacist. He's a misogynist. He voted against fair pay for women. He's voted against anything giving dignity or respect to the LGBT community his entire life. And he voted to make it easier for mentally ill people to arm themselves. And then you know what happened. He was shot by a mentally ill person, and his life was saved by a married, gay, black capital cop named Crystal Griner. Yeah, the white supremacist, misogynist, homophobe had his life saved by a black, married, lesbian cop. And he learned nothing. Steve, you can't say thoughts and prayers when you don't pray and don't think. Arm the teachers. Now, of course... (sighs) You you know, right, that the dimmest bulbs are going to go just pushing the anti-trans rhetoric. Because every time there's a mass shooting, they've got to find a way to avoid talking about guns, right? Mental health, Confederate flags, bump stocks, transgender. Donald Trump Jr. said, rather than talking about guns, we should be talking about lunatics pushing their gender-affirming bullshit on our kids. No, no one's pushing gender-affirming bullshit on your kids. Uh, You cannot groom someone to be transgender. You are just appealing to angry, low-wattage white males because that's all you can do. You can't impress smart people. J.D. Vance said, if early reports are accurate that a trans shooter targeted a Christian school, there needs to be a lot of soul searching on the the extreme left. I guess that means J.D. Vance is saying that there'll be soul searching on his part every time there is a right-wing motivated shooting, which is the majority of these. All, okay, okay. Can we can we just push away the anti-transgender bullshit from these godless fascist mediocrities? All but four of the 172 mass shooters since 1996. We've identified 172 mass shooters, and all but four of them are men. Okay, 168 out of 172. Trans people are four times more likely than cisgender people to experience violence, violent crime, including rape including assault, according to UCLA School of Law. Again, it is more dangerous to be a trans person than a cisgender person. Four times more likely to experience violent crime. The number of trans people murdered in America more than doubled from 2017 to 2021. In 2021, 59 transgender people were killed in homicides. And as long as we're talking about people who want to do nothing, can we please add representative of Tennessee, Tim Burchett. You may have heard this clip earlier. I've heard it several times. It is so shocking every time I hear it in its absolute abdication of any kind of cultural responsibility for the slaughter of kids. Give a listen. Three precious little kids lost their lives, and I believe three adults, I believe. And um, and the shooter, of course, lost their life, too. So it's it's a horrible, horrible situation. And we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. And my daddy fought in the Second World War, fought in the Pacific, fought the Japanese. And he told me, he said, buddy, he said, if somebody wants to take you out and doesn't mind losing their life, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. That's the argument. Not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. Let me turn it over to Peter Frampton, a good friend of this show, who tweeted 26 years ago, a gunman entered Dunblane Primary School in Scotland, killing 16 kids and a teacher. The UK government responded by enacting tight gun control legislation. In the 9,400 plus days since, there have been a total of zero school shootings in the UK. These godless humps keep saying there's nothing we can do about it. 
And you know why. Because of money. And because their entertainment matters more than the lives of kids. New Zealand has a constitution and they banned semi-automatics and any magazine weapon with more than 10 rounds in 2019. Australia banned all semi-automatic rifles and all semi-automatic and pump-action shotguns and thousands of unlicensed firearms were surrendered under a gun amnesty. Think about that. Since 1996, when Australia did it, there have been five murder-suicides, zero school shootings. It's very simple. It's very simple math. This only happens here. Other countries don't have this. Only here. Other countries have violent video games. Other countries have mental illness. They don't have mass shootings. Australia banned the guns. The mass shootings stopped. That's not an opinion. After the assault weapon ban here in the U.S. in 1994, mass shootings dropped. Not an opinion. Not propaganda. Stone cold facts. When the ban was repealed under President Bush, mass shootings tripled. And you know all the bullshit arguments the right's going to have. Yeah, well, you want to ban cars? Cars are dangerous to you. Cars kill. First off, we're now at a point where guns kill more people than cars. Secondly, cars, when used as the manufacturer intended, do not kill large amounts of humans very quickly. I can't believe I'm going to keep explaining this to you, MAGA bubbleheads. When a car is used as intended, it doesn't kill lots of people. AR-15s are designed to kill large amounts of humans very quickly. There is no civilian use for them. You hump. (laughs) Believing that easier access to guns will protect us from violence is like believing less access to birth control leads to fewer abortions. And and then I saw the other thing you're hearing is, well, then fine, let's have a new law. Uh, If you're trans, no gun ownership. Oh, my God, guys, this was all over the Internet today. The Second Amendment absolutists are now saying, well, a certain class of human should not be allowed to have guns all over. They finally crossed the Hitler line (laughs) because you know who else supported taking guns away from one minority while making guns more available to everyone else? Hitler. No, really, dude, that's 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 what Hitler actually did. He did that. So, look, (laughs) no one's coming for your guns, Skeeter. No one's coming for your guns, And don't accuse us of trying to exploit a tragedy. No, (laughs) you're doing that. We're the ones trying to prevent the next one. So when you're talking with your right-wing loved ones about this and all their victimized petulance, because again, it's always the amosexuals after every mass shooting who'll remind you that they're the real victims, make them say it. Make your right-wing loved ones say it. Dead kids are the price the rest of us have to pay so civilians can have access to AR-15s. Say it again, what? Say it out loud, Uncle Racist. You're saying that dead kids are the price the rest of us have to pay, so civilians can have access to AR-15s. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Hello to Teresa in New England. Hi, John. Hi. How, are you? How are you tonight? I'm great, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. John, I, my oldest son was in the third grade when Columbine took place. And all I wanted to do that afternoon was run and get him and bring him home. And my youngest son was in school during Parkland and countless other school shootings. And now my grandson's in preschool. Mm. And I'm scared to death. I I, I understand. Thoughts and prayers are not getting the work done. I'm sorry. That's right. And I was a school teacher. I was a school teacher. Do not arm school teachers. Because you have a day when you are ready to take somebody out because there's snot-nosed little brats. And arming a teacher isn't isn't going to help. And I'm not... Arming a teacher is not going to help. Arming a teacher will not help. I mean, maybe, maybe it could help, but there's no statistical evidence it'll help. That's not what teachers are supposed to do. I want to make it harder for deranged people to easily get weapons that kill lots of humans really fast instead of arming teachers. It's not unreasonable. No other society faces this problem but us. And the right-wing solution is go deeper into the problem and let it get worse. It's ridiculous. We have a rifle because we feed cattle. And once in a while, sadly, you need to put one down. Sure. And otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have it. And I, they, I had to go through a background check to buy it. Mm, it yeah. It was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And yeah. why, why, you know, I adopted a dog. And I had to go through more work to adopt the dog than I did to buy the <laughs> rifle. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and it's, it's such a sad reflection on our society. It and, is. But, but again, but remember one thing, Teresa, there's more of us. There are more of us. The other side has more money, and they have been working at gaming the system for decades, and we're just waking up to it in the last few years. But my fear is that every one of us is going to have to know someone who's killed by a gun before anything happens. I really do believe that there's so many Americans who rely on one degree of empathy. They don't care until it happens to someone they know and love. Liberals are cursed with caring about people we don't know. And that's why we're going to keep fighting. And there's more of us. And, and where are the Tennessean congressional people? You know, well, we, why, why aren't they saying these we are just played our one children? Of them. Yeah, but we just played one of them saying there's nothing we can do. <laughs> because that's just how it is. And you know what? It might seem that way in America, but the rest of the world knows better. We landed in Europe the day the, um, the 
in when they were in Norway and they and the man attacked the children at a That's right. And it was like Europe went crazy. You know? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. and Well, you know why? You know why? Because they're more pro-life than we are. That's it. They have convinced an entire generation of alleged Christians that they can throw out everything Jesus talked about and just criminalize abortion. And that means you're a good person and you don't have to care about actual kids. That's their gospel. That's the creed we are fighting against, Teresa. And I thank you very much for the call. I want to try to get a couple more before we get to our break. Is it Bruce in California? Bruce G? Hey, how's it going? Hey, Hey. how's it going? Hi. Good. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, uh, she tweeted thoughts and prayers. This is the same asshole who gets hundreds of thousands of dollars from the NRA. Yeah. What a piece of shit. I'm sorry. She's a... She is such a piece of shit. She's she's I, a I she's a, re- I she's a re- yeah. I, I'm listen. I'm I'm with you. She's a wretched human being. Uh, her her grasp of of history, of morality, of scripture. She's just she's just a bought and paid for shill. And the voters keep sending her back. So she's their choice, man. That's it. You got to get poor people to vote, or you get more people like her. Exactly. I, and can I just piggyback on the subject? Last night you were talking about you know trying to we should try to interact with a. Uh, our Republican friends, quote unquote. Please, or, by, by the way, I'm sorry, but by yeah. the way, Marsha Blackburn has taken over one million three hundred thousand oh, dollars in donations from okay. the NRA, and she's talking about thoughts and <laughs> prayers. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know the problem with today's uh, Republican Party, a uh, high percentage of them, you can't reason with them. You can't have a uh, a good faith debate. They don't believe in facts. Uh, it's hard to to interact with them. I I work. I'm a truck driver. I work, uh, we have about 320 drivers in my facility. I would say probably 80% of them are Republicans, and a lot of them are Trumpsters. It's just, you know, I used to be able to talk to these guys. You can't talk to them anymore. I know, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But you can't give up on them. You can't give up on them because... They're going to be they're going to be they're going to be waking up from it from the next 20 years. You know they will. The way some of them woke up from Reagan, some of them woke up from Bush, some of them woke up from Nixon. You can't give up hope and you can't hate them. But protect yourself, man. Be nice and protect yourself. That's how we deal with these people. Oh, I don't I don't hate anybody. It's not, oh, right on. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. Do I have time for one more quick call before the break, Chris? Yeah, real quick. Really quick. Victor in Colorado. Thanks for your patience. Hi, um Two issues. The first is with red flag laws is them being enforced by judges and by law enforcement. I know that there was a survey in Colorado where red flag laws request based requests that came from family were more likely to get denied than came from law enforcement. The second issue is regardless of what laws get passed with the Supreme Court and the Bruin opinion, and now courts across the country striking laws as unconstitutional, for example, the prohibitor with domestic violence, how are we going to get to the point where these laws, even if passed, are going to be able to sustain constitutional challenges? It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I fall back on my new favorite reliable standard. Uh, we have to add more judges to this court. Roosevelt threatened to do it, and it saved the New Deal. Biden has to start walking with a big stick and threatening to do it. Three seats on this court are stolen. 
three seats on this court are illegitimate. I think it's a valid point. And unless we push back, history will record that we just let it happen. And that's the thing is with the court. And, and this is all Mitch McConnell is doing. So yes, it is. Can rest at night with it. Exactly right. So thank exactly you. right. Mitch McConnell has hurt so many more Americans than Donald Trump, and we can never forget it because Mitch McConnell had decades of a head start in doing it. Victor, thank you very much for the call. Quick break. We will be back in just a moment with more of your calls, and we're going to talk about what's really going down with Section 230 in the U.S. Supreme Court with Tom Merritt. Don't go away. This is Sirius XM Progress, and we will be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John saying Not one, but two cases are going before the U.S. Supreme Court this week that could determine whether U.S. tech companies really are liable for all the content uploaded to their sites. Now, both of these cases involve Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which I'm sure you've heard about a lot in the news lately. It currently shields tech companies from any liability while also permitting them to remove objectionable content, even if it is protected free speech. Because again, the private company is not the government. It's not censorship, according to our Constitution. Now, the Supreme Court's been pretty public about not having a lot of expertise on the bench to go against previous lower court rulings, which have held up Section 230. But to better understand this, we have to go back to 1996, back way back in the days of your dial-up internet, right before AOL Instant Messenger changed your life. Uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was in 1996, and it provided this shield for internet platforms from legal liability that might come about from hosting or providing access to user-generated content. And of course, as we mentioned, it gives them leeway to moderate the content on their site or not moderate any of it. And a lot of people are talking about these cases. A lot of people on the left and the right are finding strange bedfellows, but a lot of well-intentioned people aren't really as grounded as we all should be in what Section 230 means. And that's why I'm so pleased we have Tom Merritt joining us tonight. He's an award-winning independent tech podcaster, host of regular tech shows and information shows like The Daily Tech News Show, covering the most important tech issues of the day with the smartest minds in technology. He also hosted the award-winning Tech News Today and CNET's Buzz Out Loud. You may have seen him on Good Morning America or NPR or The Week in Tech. It is such a pleasure to welcome Tom Merritt to SiriusXM. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you. I so hope I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. You did. That was great. That was excellent. Well, I I mean, I've I've always heard of it, but I've been trying to be more informed now that there's, I mean, not one, but but two cases at the same time. I'd like to ask to break down the cases if we could. They're not quite the same. I know Gonzalez versus Google deals with YouTube, right? Yeah, Gonzalez versus Google, Google owner of YouTube, hence hence the Google in there, uh, rests on whether algorithmic recommendations are protected as moderation. Uh, So to understand that, you have to understand a little about what you just said, that Section 230 protects a platform from, from... being sued for its moderation decisions prior to section 230 uh if you moderated you then became the publisher of the information section 230 said no we're not going to punish you from for moderating so the question in gonzalez versus google is are the algorithmic recommendations that youtube makes uh exempt from that are they Mm. are they a kind of moderation and therefore protected or are they an editorial choice uh, and then becoming editorial content because Section 230 doesn't protect you from what you say as the platform. If Facebook writes something, they're still responsible for that. This was sort of the theme of the TikTok hearing last week as well. Uh, yes. One of the many uh, yes, themes, it, I should say, of the TikTok uh, hearing. The TikTok t- hearing did not have to uh, hold to the law, did it? Uh, that, that was more <laughs> about op- opinion, uh, whereas these Supreme Court cases have to have to follow precedent and, and follow Section 230, right? Oh, listen, the TikTok case was all about a lot of politicians trying to get their audition reel on cable news. Yeah, day, yeah. No doubt. But it, but it was one of the focuses of, of the, the TikTok hearing was the... Um, the uh, the challenge that uh, Bob Latta, the Republican from Ohio, was pressing Mr. Chu about the um, blackout challenge where a 10 year old girl who participated died. And his accusation was that TikTok had actively pushed the video on right. her feed. And so the company was somehow therefore liable. I mean, it just a lot of different cases are connecting to Section 230. Yeah, so Gonzalez versus Google, like you say, is is very similar to that uh, in in saying you're responsible for what your algorithm pushes. That's your responsibility. Uh, Tomna versus Twitter is the other case that's being heard alongside. That mm-hmm. rests on whether failure to remove terrorist content fast enough constitutes liability for criminal content. Uh, so it's a little more uh, about the terrorist act and whether that applies. Now, I, I think. Uh, A lot of the justices uh, in what they were saying in the hearings on this uh, felt like maybe they could kick the can down the road uh, if if they ruled narrowly on Tomna versus Twitter and and just sort of send Gonzalez versus Google back to the lower courts. Right. Right. I have to ask you, Tom, and I I did listen to your podcast on this because I find it so informative. I mean, have you ever seen a case where so many liberals and conservatives, brothers and sisters alike, were jumping into bed on the same issue, except they might not, respect to all, be as fully informed on the issue as they could be? Yeah, I agree that they aren't as fully informed on the technology as maybe they should be. I felt like personally they were using that as a bit of a shield to say, and therefore we can we can kick this uh, we can kick this back down because when they did talk about Tomna versus Twitter, uh, they demonstrated a lot more awareness of what was going on. But like you say, uh, they weren't falling into the traditional roles. Uh, Justice right. Clarence Thomas asked how the law would treat him if he provided a gun to a friend 
who then went on to commit the crime. And Justice mm-hmm. Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, pointed out that willful blindness is something that we have said can constitute knowledge and that those were different ways of approaching, well, Twitter, should you have known uh, that this kind of content was out there and should you have prevented it from being posted? Yeah, it's amazing that this is happening last week. And then this week we get all these very colorful fake images of Donald Trump's arrest uh, with AI happening at the same time. And it raises the debate yet again, should companies be liable for any harm because of this kind of technology? Now, as you know, Mr. Merritt, Republicans are saying, well, they're censoring the conservative voices. And our friends on the left are saying, no, well, these, these tech giants are allowing lies to flourish. And, and a lot of us are saying that they're driving the economy. They have incredible power. Unlike 1996, they might not need these financial protections as much anymore. Is that fair to say? When you say financial protections, you mean like Section 230? That's it. Yes. Yeah, so that's one of the arguments yeah. I keep hearing yeah. from people on both left Twitter and right, right, right. Twitter. Yeah, I, I find that one hard to deal with simply because I don't look at Section 230 as a financial protection. Uh, in fact, in my opinion, anyway, if Section 230 were repealed, that would be better for the high dollar incumbents. That would be good exactly. for the Facebooks of the world because they have the money to deal with lawsuits and and, mm-hmm. and, and being liable uh, and being able to throw a lot of money towards moderation practices that they can say you know, they're making their best effort. Don't forget that Section 230 also protects you and me. Uh, if right. we are running our own website, if we are running a small business website uh, and we're taking comments from people, uh, any comments that those people leave are not your responsibility if you moderate them and Section 230 protects that. So I think Section 230 gets bandied about as a little bit of a weapon uh, in ways that aren't really about what the law says. Well, and I like how you point out that even if we got rid of it completely, these sites might still censor and they might still not be liable for their content. Can you break down for our listeners your explanation of how these sites within these platforms would then have to be divvied up either a a publisher or a distributor? Yeah, that that's how things were before Section 230. It was one of the reasons that Section 230 was created is prior to that, the courts had ruled, well, if you're a bookstore. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a book in, that you are selling, and it turns out there's there's libel. Let's say there there's libel in that book, uh, and you didn't know it. You couldn't have been expected to know it. It's a brand new book. You're not responsible. You're just the distributor of it. Right. But if you're the publisher, you know the the people who made the book, you are responsible. You absolutely knew what was in there. And what that ha- how that applied to the early web is if I was running a message board or a chat room, the court said, well, if you're just allowing anyone to say whatever they want, then you're a distributor. You're just passing along the information. But if you select what people are allowed to say in your chat room or on your message board, well, then you're a publisher. You're, you're making editorial choices. And so it left companies in the situation of having to choose, do we not moderate at all and let people say whatever they want, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but not be responsible for it and, and it become a hellscape? Uh, or do we moderate uh, very carefully and very aggressively 
because that will allow our chat room or our message board to be a reasonably enjoyable place to be, but we'll have to overdo it. We'll have to look at every message before it's posted and we'll have to get rid of messages that we think are questionable just in case they ended up being a problem because we're liable for that. Section 230 said, no, you don't have to do prior restraint. You can let people put things up and you're not gonna be responsible for them even if you decide to take some of them down later. I don't even know where to begin asking what are the risks of change like that? Let, let, let's say that they were to gut Section 230 as we know it. I mean, what would happen to the American economy? I mean, it's hard to say what would happen to the American economy immediately, but certainly what would happen to the tech platforms is it would be harder to post things. They would most likely go to some sort of prior restraint system where they're going to look at what everybody posts and approve it. Uh, and it's going to make it more difficult for smaller platforms to get in the game. Now, you can argue it's already pretty difficult for a smaller platform to get in the game simply because of competitive measures. Uh, but it would it would make it very very much impossible uh, for somebody to create a new platform without taking on a lot of legal risk um as you have also pointed out there's two key subsections that govern all these user generated posts the first one as you said protects the platforms from legal liability relating to whatever harmful content someone might post up there and the second one 230c2 is what i want to ask about the one that allows the platforms to police their site for the harmful content but not require that they actually remove anything and protecting mm -hmm. them from liability if they choose not to. Now, this is, I quoted a Republican senator before. Let me bring up Ron Wyden, who said Section 230 is not about neutrality, period, full stop. 230 is all about letting private companies make their own decisions to leave up some content and take other content down. Does he have a fair point? Uh, yes, I think he does have a fair point because what they have done to Section 230 over the years, it actually started with a couple of exemptions and it, they have added them over the years, is if uh, what someone is posting is a crime, then it has to be taken down. If it's an intellectual property uh, violation, it has to be taken down through a separate law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, and they have added over the years uh, sex trafficking. So if it is somehow related to sex trafficking, then they have to take it down. The argument then becomes, well, do we need a whole new law or should we bolt on more exceptions like that and say, well, it ha if it's this, if it's that, it also has to be taken down. Something like terrorism might come to mind. That's already covered under criminal. That's a, that's a crime. Uh under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Uh, but there are there any other things that aren't a crime to say, but we would like platforms to have to take them down, like sex trafficking, for example. Mm. So let me ask you about Twitter and Elon Musk, if I could, because I've been sure. dying to ask your thoughts on this. I think that there will be books written about the last several months on Twitter for a long time. <laughs> I don't see a lot of corporate models quite like this, uh, unless, you know, Ahab or Lear, perhaps. But I mean... <laughs> I was trying to think of how I could relate Elon to this issue. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was Twitter's new paid verification system, where now the world doesn't have to know who you are. As long as you pay, they'll say you're verified. Could that expose Twitter to liability despite Section 230? If someone that uh, they said was legit was allowed to spread disinformation, which Elon has shown a penchant for not exactly enforcing. Yeah, right now, uh, Section 230 would protect Twitter uh, in the case of that kind of misinformation, short of it being one of those categories we just talked about, like a crime. Like the bookstore, uh, right. 
yeah. Um, so, so if it's a crime, then Twitter has to take it down. But if they're just lying about something uh, in order to sway someone's opinion, uh, that's not against the law, and they would be protected even if they're verifying, even, you know, section 230 says you're allowed to do things like verification, even if you make mistakes at them. Uh, I think the the bigger issue for me with with Musk's Twitter verification situation uh, is that he says that he's only going to allow people who are verified to show up in the algorithmically chosen timeline. And that there's 300,000 people who are buying Twitter blue out of two, 300 million users. There's not going to be very many people on that timeline. I've never seen such a lovely site get ruined so fast. I swear to God, it's just <laughs> it's it's mind boggling. But I want to ask you about TikTok as well. You know, back in sure. the early days of you in early YouTube, there were these uh, the cool hunters, the people responsible for manually keeping the homepage curated. And one of the questions we keep hearing is whether it's acceptable in this day and age for a platform to get involved in you know manually overriding the work of the algorithms. TikTok confirmed that some of the employees have access to something called a heating button that can actually override the algorithm and promote videos across all of the For You pages for the users. Now, is is that the sort of thing uh, that we've reached in this society, that human override of a computer algorithm is now a problem? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, you, you, you can't get it right either way. Either uh, you're... you're <laughs> you're you're biased because you let humans choose it and humans have biased uh or you're not you're not uh treating people with enough respect because you right. let the algorithms do it right um I, there has to be a happy medium and and i think i think with all of this new generative ai and 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 algorithms that are coming we're we're slowly learning what that interactive is what that balance should be right Yes. I mean, it was interesting watching the TikTok hearings last week and seeing so many lawmakers seemingly learning what an algorithm is right there on the spot. <laughs> I, I was or wondering Wi-Fi. what your right. What, what was your takeaway from those hearings beyond the fact that it was just a grandstanding parade that changed nothing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, every hearing is, is usually got a, an element of grandstanding. So if you kind of correct for that and say what else was there, uh, the thing that stood out to me is just how united both parties were in in saying we don't want TikTok to exist in the United States anymore, uh, there was no there was no advocate for TikTok on that bench. Usually, there's one or two Congress people who are willing to say, "Well, hold on, you know, let me ask you a, a friendly question." There were no friendly questions. This is a decision that has been made. The question is whether China will allow TikTok to be sold, uh, whether through some deal with Oracle called Project Texas they can come to an arrangement, or whether they'll just do what India did and. Say, Say it's banned. You you can't serve the app in the app stores, and internet service providers can't serve the IP address. Which would that would be a big deal for the United States? We generally do not do that. I can't see this particular version of the Democratic Party being willing to alienate that many young people that ferociously. Mm-hmm. I, I I just don't see it happening. Do you think that that TikTok, like Section Two Hundred and Thirty, is most likely safe from any boat rocking for the foreseeable future? I think it's going to be interesting to see who really continues to stand. Uh, They were so firm during that hearing. It makes me think they know there's an out. Uh, that they know there's there's somewhere that TikTok is going to be able to find safe harbor. Because you're right, uh, you can win a lot of points for being anti-China, uh, but you win fewer points on the Democratic electorate than you do on the Republican electorate with yeah. that. Uh, and and like you say, there's going to be a lot of folks on the left who are going to be very upset if TikTok gets banned. 
you know what, as long as big tech can still completely influence our elections, I, I think I'll feel like everything's normal. Uh, Tom Merritt, it's such, <laughs> Sadly a pleasure, true, right? <laughs> such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really a fan. Thank you for making it so accessible. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it. If you like these kinds of conversations, head to dailytechnewsshow.com or just look up Daily Tech News Show in your podcast reader. Seriously, I love your podcast. Thank you so much, Tom Merritt, for joining us. Quick break, then we'll be back with your calls at 866-997-4748. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This year began on a high note politically, thanks to Democrats in the great state of Virginia after their win in the special election. It kind of shut down Governor Yunkin's push for a 15-week abortion ban. That was a major win, and that victory was due in no small part to our next guest. Louise Lucas represents the 18th district in the southeast of the state since 1992. In 2019, she became the Virginia Senate's president pro tempore. She is the first woman and the first African-American to hold Hold that office. Senator Lucas is a top critic of the policies of Governor Glenn Youngkin. She is a Twitter rock star and she is always in service to the people. I feel like I feel like a groupie in New York City for our hero from Virginia. Welcome, Senator Louise Lucas. Well, thank you for that introduction. That is awesome. <laughs> I can hope the people in my district feel the same way about me. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. I think they do. They keep sending you back. I, I have to say, it, it was so inspiring for so many of us to have the year begin on such a high note. And I wonder what it was like for you serving in the Senate for the first time since the Supreme Court ruling in June of 2022, gutting Roe v. Wade, to actually show up for work and have to debate how your state should regulate abortion rights. Well, I want to start by telling you that when I went to the Senate of Virginia, our rights were intact. And of course, access to reproductive health has been the policy in Virginia ever since I've been in the legislature. So when Youngkin's rolled in here with his plans for a 15-week ban and, and, and a lot of other legislation that was even more draconian than that, personally, I was energized because, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, I was born, grew up, during the, I mean, I was born, but grew up during the the, the heat of the civil rights movement. And so anytime something, I'm faced with something like this, I get renewed energy from somewhere to fight even harder and to make sure that those who are coming after us, our younger generations, that they understand that the fight is always in front of us. There's never a time that we can rest on our laurels. And so what this did was help me to go around the state. 
I started traveling around the state as soon as Junkins got into office, getting people energized, trying to get them to understand that voting has consequences and the elections have consequences. And that if we were to prevent something like this from happening again, everybody needs to be ambassadors of one, go into their communities, make sure people were registered and voting because we don't need the kind of draconian legislation that's been introduced by this administration. And so in a, in a word, how did I feel after this, this all started? Re-energized, reinvigorated to do what I did during the civil rights movement. And that was a fight like hell to make sure that he did not turn back the hands of time on our progress. I'm so inspired by it. I mean, as you well know, your governor all but admitted the only thing that was stopping him from going for a complete ban on abortions in the state, which Biden won by 10 points, was that he didn't have enough votes in the legislature. I mean, you and your fellow Democrats have really been heroes in resisting this kind of movement. We have a Senate Democratic brick wall and we stood strong. And there was only one time when we thought that one of our members might not be standing with us. And of course, that did happen, but fortunately, we were able to win the seat in Virginia Beach, and we were able to hold the line to make sure that we defeated every one of those uh, reproductive bills, those bills that would have restricted reproductive rights for pregnant people in Virginia. And I, I am so happy about that. As long as we maintain our majority, youngers will never get anything as draconian as that passed in Virginia. Mm-hmm. I promise you. <laughs> well, you've mentioned in the past, Senator, that Glenn Youngkin, and this doesn't get talked about enough, but he put money for the corrections department in his budget so they could jail women if they violated his 15-week abortion ban. I don't know why more politicians aren't talking about this. If they're trying to criminalize the procedure... I don't know why they aren't either, but I think... Right? That's right. I don't know why they're not talking about it either. I mean, because what he wanted to do was... If he couldn't get them to have an abortion, he wanted to put them in jail. <laughs> that is utter nonsense. And I'll tell you what, all, I, I'm inspired to go back and talk about that some more because I don't think people hear that enough. That he was actually, that he actually put money in the budget that would create a penalty for women to have an abortion. Same thing for their doctors. He wanted to criminalize, criminalize Virginia. Here we are uh, in this last couple of uh, legislative sessions coming up with a uh, criminal justice reform packages that would try to reduce incarceration and he wants to increase the number of incarcerated people by putting women in prison if they attempted to have an abortion. Tell me, how bad would think is that? But that's the goal. I mean, this is the, you know, I, I keep saying this about our Republican friends. They're not going to be able to end abortions. They can only end the safe, legal, regulated kinds. And so if you're talking about criminalizing abortion, which I think is the language we have to use, the end result is putting women and doctors in jails. I mean, that's their eventual goal. You have, you have, you nailed it. That's it. That's it. Exactly. You know, I, I, but I'm I tell very... you what, I will be standing firm to fight him on every, I will be standing firm to fight him every time he comes forward with any such legislation. Well, your goal, Senator, is to put abortion rights and LGBT rights into Virginia's Constitution in 2026, right? That's that's the end goal here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the reason why I'm fighting as hard as I am to get reelected to the 18th Senatorial District, because I need to be there in a time like this. There are times when you feel like, oh, somebody else can do it. But I don't want to leave this to somebody else. I want to make sure I am there. I am there to be that voice. We need a person who is not afraid. I am fearless when it comes to these issues. 
I grew up during the civil rights movement, and just like I fought then, I'll fight now because, you know, these are the rights that the thing that bothers me so much is that he also has put the lives of women in jeopardy because people are not able to get a legal abortion. They will attempt to try to get an abortion, and a lot of people will die, especially women of color. And I tell you, I'm just so aggrieved by all of that. I, there, there's no morning that I wake up with anything other than fighting this administration on these bills that turn back the hands of time on our progress. Well, let, let's talk about another one then, Senator, because you have been amazing. I, I love your Twitter, by the way. I was following you long before this interview was scheduled. You make me very proud to be half Virginian. But, you know, Youngkin has announced Thank he's no you. longer going to automatically restore people's voting rights. I mean, we thought that after you paid your you. debt, you'd get your rights back. But they're they're going for lifetime disenfranchisement in the state of Virginia. OK, and let me tell, we'll tell you what all that's intended to do. It's another effort to suppress voters who will not be voting for him. Because this governor thinks that if they get their rights back, of course, they're going to be voting Democratic. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are not monolithic in their views, whether they have a criminal record or not. But I just want to say to you, this is another way to suppress the vote. That has been the goal of not just this this current administration, These kinds of bills have been introduced off and on ever since I've been in the Senate of Virginia. And I can tell you, as a a child of the civil rights movement, I stand firm and strong to fight against every effort to to make sure that people get, I'm wanting to make sure people have access to voting, Mm. not have have their rights restricted. Senator, my mom uh, grew up in, in the area, not far from where you represent, and I've had a lot of family there my whole life. My grandfather used to work in the Norfolk Naval Shipyards, just like you did once upon a time. My, my dad taught school near you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm curious, what was it that led you on a path to public service? A lot of my loved ones in the area do feel the same way you do about voting rights and about the rights of, of women. Um, a lot of my loved ones down there feel the way our conservative friends feel, and I'm curious, what was it in your personal evolution? Were you always raised to be this kind of activist, to be a voice for the voiceless in government? Well, I can tell you, it started for me when I was in my early 20s and I was going to city council meetings because I've always been concerned about what goes on in my community. And of course, at that time, I was president of the NAACP and the local government, our city council, I did not feel was enforcing its zoning codes as it should. And so mm-hmm. I went to city council to tell them that I thought there needed to be more effort on their part to enforce the city codes. And a snippet remark was made to me by the then mayor that said, oh, she thinks she's the eighth member of city council. Well, all that did was motivate me to get even more involved. Mm-hmm. And so in my 30s, of course, I still was working in the, in the, in the, as a part of the civil rights movement. And I finally decided, well, I'm going to run for city council. And it was like, huh? She thinks she's going to want to see on city council. No African-American woman had ever served on a city council. So far be it from them to think that I could win. But not only did I win, I became the top vote getter. And from there, it just went forward. I spent eight years on city council, and I've been in the Senate since 1992. I have a total of 38 years service, and I feel like I'm in a good position with enough experience and know-how to make sure that we continue to move forward and not backwards. 
<laughs> Amen. I want to just l- fill in our listeners a little bit on on your legend, Senator, because I've been a fan for a long time. In in 2021, Thank you're you. someone who's you you've long pushed for police reform. You were part of the protest to get rid of the Confederate monument in uh, in Portsmouth, and of course, it was made national news. The former police chief Angela Green announced felony charges against you and 18 other people, including NAACP leaders. Uh, ultimately, a judge dismissed all the charges and the police chief was fired that same day. But uh, you're, the amount of pushback you've received, the amount of death threats you've received has astonished me. Last year, you, you received a message that you shared on Twitter with a photo of a Klan march outside the U.S. Capitol. And the only message was, learn your place. <sighs> Senator, my mother... That's exactly right. Re- but guess what? Please. <laughs> Go ahead. I think they thought they were intimidating me. All they did was motivate me. (laughs) But are you ever surprised, Senator? My mom used to tell me stories about the segregated Virginia, uh, you know, of the Jim Crow era. And and it's always grotesque to me. But when you post these racist messages, I I know that, you know, they pick the wrong target when they go after you. But they sent you such horrible things. And you just always... Put publish it on Facebook or Twitter and, and shame the, the racists, and it's amazing to see, but does it ever surprise you? Does it ever shock you how vitriolic and ignorant and brutal some of these people are? You know what? <laughs> you might find this a surprise for me to say this. I've never been surprised. As I indicated, I grew up in segregated Virginia. When our schools were closed down because there was a resistance to integrate the schools, I've marked, I have been in the movement. We've had threats. We have been, I mean, we've been chased. And so what else can they do other than make the threat? I don't feel, I don't feel intimidated, let me say, first of all, by those threats. And thank God that I don't. And I think the intent is to try to intimidate other folks so that they will not participate in the fight. But I have never felt intimidated and I will never turn around and I will continue to move forward and fight against all of these isms racism, mm. sexism, you name it. I'm in the fight to make sure that we push back. You uh, you said about Governor Youngkin's budget, uh, we need to make sure we put money into the pockets of hardworking families in education and to hell with the governor's budget proposal. I completely agree. Is this man serious about governance for the people of Virginia or is this all just about his presidential ambitions? You know what? And people have their different views on it, but I believe he walked into office after he won this election uh, he was probably energized by that in the conversation that he was getting from his uh, supporters on the right. They said, oh, we think you can run for president. Remember, they did the same thing with Bob McDonald. And uh-huh. that felt oh, yeah. like a lead balloon. And, 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 this, and this one will as well. See, I served with Bob McDonald. Bob and McDonald and I both were elected to the General Assembly at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I know once they win the governorship, their eyes are automatically set on the next position that they can win. And if yeah. you ask me, for, for, for Youngkin, I don't think it's ever been about governing Virginia after he won because he saw himself moving on to another level. But I'll tell you what, I will make sure wherever he goes, I will present information that will show people this is not the kind of person you want serving in the White House. I would not want his feet in that Oval Office. And I will fight to make sure that it doesn't happen. 
Well, you're doing the Lord's work, Senator. I have to tell you that because Yunkin does scare me quite a bit. And, and I want to point out to our listeners, you are someone who has worked with your Republican colleagues across the aisle many times in your career in the Virginia State Senate. I mean, compromise is not something that you're afraid of. Uh, absolutely not, because if you would go back and look at the record, you would see uh, Senator Steve Newman. He and I were seatmates uh, for 12 years. He's a Republican from Lynchburg, one of my favorite and one of my best friends in the Senate, but also one of my favorite Republicans in the Senate. He and I introduced a bill that repealed the, the state song. Remember to carry me back to old Virginia and how, That's uh, right. oh, my God, offensive that was? Yep. It took the two of us to repeal that. But there have been many other pieces of legislation, even when it came to the bill that I worked on for over two decades, the casino bill, when I worked and tried to make sure that we could get uh, legalized, uh, that we could get a casino gaming in Virginia. It took Senator Carrico from Bristol, white male Republican and a black female Democrat from Portsmouth, working together to craft a bill that finally passed. And now the first casino in Virginia now stands here in the city of Portsmouth. But there have been several times when I've crossed the aisles and worked with my colleagues. And the same thing is true on working on the merge of the Eastern Virginia Medical School, medical facility, Eastern Virginia Medical School with Old Dominion University and with Centera Hospital to make sure that Eastern Virginia Medical School become a teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the bill that I introduced for the for the uh, solar wind bill, and I always had a Republican uh, on the, the the House side that carried those legislation carried the legislation. So we had the bill that was carried in the House was mirrored with the bill that was carried in the Senate. So if you look at all the major legislation that I have introduced and gotten passed and the budget amendments that I've introduced and gotten passed, you will see that there was always bipartisan support on those bills. Just this last session, I introduced a bill uh, for four through eight literacy program. And that's to make sure that we hire a teacher who is a teaching specialist in a classroom of every school in Virginia. And and the reason why I, we introduced it this time, and of course, my, my Republican on the other side is Al Terry Connor. She carried the bill in in the House, and last year we carried the K through three literacy program, got that funding, and so the best way to get the really really good stuff done is to make sure that you have bipartisan support. So I've been able to forge those kinds of relationships with the Republicans in the House and the Senate to get really really good stuff passed. But when it comes to the stuff that Glenn Youngkin has put forward, I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that it doesn't get passed. And of course, I feel it's my responsibility to introduce good legislation and get that passed, but I feel equally responsible to make sure that we defeat all of the bad stuff that has an adverse impact on the lives of the people that we represent here in Virginia. Amen. I, I have to ask you, Senator, I, I, I grew up with Doug Wilder as the governor of Virginia, and I admired a lot of what Governor Northam tried to do to, to, to help the disenfranchised, especially for women's rights, especially for gun safety. I'm curious, why, why, why didn't it work with Terry McAuliffe and what do Democrats have to do to win in the state of Virginia? Because I think the votes are there. The voters are there if they get inspired to come out on Election Day. You know what? There was only one thing that kept Terry from winning that election. And that was when the governor started pivoting to uh, suburban women with CRT, the critical race mm, theory. You're right. And, and, and all of the kind of scare tactics that they used to scare white people. And, and, and that was some of what was going on there. But then we had that one situation where, and of course, I understood exactly what it meant. Terry has always wanted teachers 
and uh, families to be, the parents to be involved in the education of their students. It's just that we were not able to get that message turned around in time. And Yunkin seized that opportunity to try to poison suburban women against Democrats because we were oh so close to winning this election. And it would have been a whole lot different yep. than Terry won. But I, you know, I said it. it then and I say it again now. Uh, people uh, said, for those folks who said that Terry wasn't that cup, quite that cup of tea, I asked them, how do they like that crap they're sticking, sipping on now? Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you nailed it, Senator. Um, before I let you go, I'm so grateful to you for making the time to speak with us today. And I would be most remiss if I if I didn't ask you um, about gun safety. We are recording this conversation a day after the devastating mass shooting in Nashville. Um, you know, there's a lot of families in Virginia, parents who are very, very worried about their kids' safety. They're terrified and they are wondering what government can do to help them. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what we as a people have a responsibility to do to try to reduce these kinds of mass shootings without uh, taking away people's right to own firearms. We can do it without taking away people's rights to own firearms. And this is the message that we have been trumpeting all over Virginia and, and, and as I can see it all over the, all over the nation. But what we need, what the other thing we need to do in addition to dealing with these mental health issues is to make sure that we are vetting folks who are buying these, these, these weapons of mass destruction to make sure that they are mentally stable to have them in the first place. But there's some firearms I think a lot of folks will agree that just common everyday citizens don't need to have access to. Amen. Why would you have to need to have access to weapons of mass destruction? We're not trying to take away people's rights to own weapons. We're just trying to make sure that we keep these firearms out of the uh, uh, out of the hands of people who are not stable. And I think there needs to be some bans. And I think the ban that President Biden is going for right now is one that the, that, that the federal government, the members of Congress, ought to pass. I completely agree. Can I also just say that you are one of my favorite people on Twitter, and I wish that more state senators would follow your example and use the platform. You're just amazing, and you're one of the reasons why I won't quit that site. Well, thank you so much. And I tell you, one of the reasons I was still on that site is because I want to continue to get the word out that there are some of us who are concerned enough and want to make sure that our constituents remain informed. And however, or whatever platform I have to use to make sure that that happens, I'm going to do it on a daily basis. Senator Louise Lucas represents the beautiful 18th District of Virginia. That's Portsmouth, you guys. She is the Virginia Senate's President Pro Tempore. It is such a great pleasure to have you on our show. I've admired your work and your spirit for such a long time. Thank you for inspiring me. It's been my pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for bringing me on the program. 